Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Bonafide Moto Show. I'm uh, I'm your host, Joe Fleming, also known as So Tall Right Now. Um, thank you all for joining us tonight for episode 14, I think it is. Um, we're now five and a half weeks into this Um it's been a lot of fun so far, and um, I think we're just kind of getting warmed up. Um, so here in South Africa, for those watching from overseas, we kind of loosen up our lockdown on Friday, but it's kind of vague as to what that's going to look like. So I think that we're going to still continue to do episodes three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, for at least a couple more weeks. Um, we've got more people, I've got more people lined up, um, that I really want to chat to, um, people that I've never met before. And this is actually turning out to be a great way to meet new people and have you all meet them as well. Um, uh, there's a lot of people in the motorcycle industry and outside the motorcycle industry that, um, I definitely want to get to know, and this is turning out to be a pretty good way to get to know them. Um, so, um, uh, episode 15 tonight, we have Henry Crew on the show. Um, for those that are on Instagram and into motorcycles, you probably saw, got to know Henry probably about a year and a half, two years ago when he started his um, world record attempt um, to try to be the youngest person to circumnavigate the world. So we're going to get to chat to him about that tonight. Um, just a friendly reminder um, uh, about the questions. If you have questions for Henry during the show, you can click the question mark button below. Um, this um, this show is powered by Motul. Um, if you have, if you outside of like the oil products that Motul does, they've got a whole lineup of MC Care products. And one of my favorite products that they have is their Mo, uh, Moto Wash. I think it is what it's called. It's a big spray bottle. But what you do, I actually used it on my truck um, two weeks ago. I took the truck out into the road. And washed it. I think it's frowned upon, not really allowed. So I didn't take any photos or talk about it until now. Um, but it was super muddy and it was great because I hosed the truck down a bit, sprayed the motor wash, let it sit for five minutes. And to my surprise, like the mud just like fell off. So if you've got, um, if you, if you've got like a muddy bike, like under the fenders, places that you normally can't brush or get to, um, I really recommend the, the moto wash. Like I use it under my, on the truck under the fenders it was really cool. Um, just helps makes things easier. Um, and it's quite cool to see how well it, uh, comes up. So, uh, Friday, we also have, um, Friday night show, we don't, we aren't going to have around the campfire. Um, the fire pit was returned to its lovely owner, uh, Mersha from Motul and Justin now have their fire pit back at their house. So if you've missed the fire pit at our place, you can probably check out their Instagram stories here the next couple days because they've got it back. 
Um, so we're looking on Gumtree and within our neighborhood for new fire pits so we can get back to Friday night shows. Um, but on Friday night show, we have Cam Elkins, who is a director and producer um, based in Sydney, Australia. He does a series of YouTube shows um, called Stories of Bike. And he's also got a new show coming out next year, probably uh, called Crossroads. Um, so I'm really excited to chat to him. And what's so cool is that he lives in Sydney. So when I chatted to him last week, I said, dude, like, we've got this show. I really want you to be on the show, but I just need to figure out, like, the time zone. Like, I think he's eight hours ahead of us. So it means he would be doing the show at 3 a.m. And he said, look, I can do it on a Saturday. It's not like I'm going anywhere. So he's going to wake up 2 in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, his time to do the show with us. So... I'm really excited about that, and um, a, a lot of kudos to him for wanting to wake up that early. So, without further ado, um, I think I've gotten through everything. Oh, yeah. If you've missed any episodes, starting with episode nine, where we had Kingsley Holgate, um, we now have an Apple podcast available. So, you can go on to Apple, type in Bonafide Moto Show. Uh, it'll come up with the logo, the horse, and the bolts, and everything. This logo here, that one, and you can now subscribe to the podcast, listen to it anytime. Um, so it's a great way if you miss the show, you can kind of catch up. So without further ado, Henry, I'm coming for you, buddy. Stand by. I see Andrew Robertson added, added to be on the show. Sorry, buddy. Not today. You got Henry, another guy. Andrew, I think you're in the UK. Henry! Hey, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Yeah, all good. All good, thanks. Yeah, it's nice to see you. At home. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we I think we all are. And yeah. If, if you're not, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> you're either you're or you're in Sweden or Singapore, maybe, I guess. Yeah, I mean, or America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the state of Georgia, you can go out and be free. <laughs> that's that's what they're doing. Right. Yeah. Dude, it's uh dude, it's nice to finally meet you. And, and I actually wanted to um I actually wanted to kinda intro it before I got you on the call. Um, but now that you're here, I guess it kinda works out even better. Like I remember just before you just when you were starting your trip. So for those that just joined, Henry is a world record holder for the youngest person to circumnavigate the world. Um, he's going to tell us that, uh, tell us about the trip tonight. Um, but what I remember is like two, a year and a half ago, or two years ago, um, I think my business partner, Alan, was like, dude, you got to check out this dude's profile on Instagram. He's about to be the youngest person to circumnavigate the world and... He's gonna do it on a Ducati Scrambler, and you're like, no, man, no way! I don't think he's gonna finish. Yeah, and, um, you weren't the only ones. Yeah, and I, yeah, you know, I must say, like, we had our doubts about the bike. I didn't know you, um, but I was so glad to see like you finished, um, and it was just like so cool to watch for that year, of like the places you went. It was so so great. Yeah, it's mad. It 
it does feel almost like another person did that yeah. trip now. Um, yeah. After I've been back just over a year. Um, it was a year last week that I got home. So sure. it's been a it's been a slow year. I mean, I've done so much this year and um, ticked another nine countries off off the list and probably put in twenty five thousand miles. Um, wow. But I don't know if if you can ever kind of reach that um, that. 22 leaving the uk to um to go around the whole world and uh, getting back when i was 23 it's it's pretty hard to kind of reach that um yeah reach that level and, again yeah no i mean and it's not like it's a pinnacle but you were like quite young to to do that and like a lot of respect and kudos to you for being that young and like completing it i and, think the challenge is now making sure that it's not the pinnacle and that's the yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no I, I i don't think from you that it'll be the pinnacle there's no way, no way. <laughs> <Let's hope not. laughs> yeah. um and like was it one of the questions like i was so curious about was was it about um about you breaking a record or was it like I want to go around the world now after college or wherever you were in your life. Um, and you actually found a gap that there was a world record attempt that you could break. Yeah, for me, it was, uh, it was sort of threefold. So I wanted to travel by motorcycle. I'd been riding for about three years um, and wanting to do longer trips, but never really managing more than a weekend away um, okay. because of work commitments and um, in addition to that, I was doing quite a bit of freelance work. So if I took time off, I wouldn't get paid. Um, uh, and it just wasn't financially viable to, to do any sort of decent motorcycle trip, really. Um, okay. So I had this desire to travel um, by motorcycle specifically and was at work, saw an article about Kane Avellano, whose record I broke. Um, that was the first time I even realized that I could be the youngest. I had never considered it before okay. um, realized that I was younger and if I left within a year then I could have a, a decent amount of time in which to try and break that record and literally just decided there and then turned around to make um, Glenn at work and said I'm gonna break the world record and be the youngest person to circumnavigate the world on a motorcycle and everyone was just like okay cool <laughs> and then uh, 11 months later um I think to a lot of people's disbelief, I actually left. Yeah. And uh, yeah, about 13 months after that, I came back, which I think was even more surprising. Yeah. And what was, um, how did you, um, what like made you decide on, on the Ducati Scrambler? What, what, what was the reasoning there? So I actually wanted to ride the bike that I was, um, was my daily, was my daily bike in the UK, which was a Kawasaki 800, which is, uh, okay. it's like, it's like a poor man's Bonneville. Is how I like to describe it. So, um, I was riding this bike for uh, probably about a year and a half, two years, decided to do the trip. And two weeks later, I wrote the bike off coming home from work in the rain. I crashed it. I actually split the engine in half. It was quite a bad crash. Um, and about two weeks after that, having sort of contacted hundreds of people saying, asking for sponsorship for the trip and trying to see yeah. how I can make it work. Um, I got in touch with Movember, a guy called Ben at Movember um, messaged me back, emailed me back and said, let's meet for coffee. We're really excited about this project. 
So I went to meet him and he said, um, this is amazing. We really want to support you and would love you to do it with Movember. And I was like, fantastic, but I no longer have a bike to do it on because uh, it's, in, it's in bits. Uh, so <laughs> really Movember turned to me and said, let us handle the um, motorcycle and we will we'll try and find you a, a, a ride for the trip. Um, okay. And that, that process went on for literally for 10 months and we went through five six different companies that got to the final um stage almost and then just went cold um so originally i was going to ride a harley davidson they were going to customize a harley davidson into some sort of adventure scrambler then uh hmm. royal enfield i think were interested at one point um even norton offered a bike which okay. would have been really interesting. wow the most expensive um, bike to choose. <laughs> yeah, everyone told me I should have said yes, sold it and bought whatever bike I wanted <laughs> yeah. and funded the rest of the trip. Um, yeah. So yeah, I got to maybe, it was November. So I was planning to leave in February and it got to November and I still had no bike to ride. And um, I can't remember what it was, but the desert sled just popped into my head and I'd seen it before somewhere. Um, I'd definitely seen the scrambler before, but not the de maybe not the desert sled. Um, I saw the desert sled and literally just knew instantly that was the bike I wanted to ride. I wanted to ride something that was um, that people rode every day, that I'd be yeah. happy riding every day. Think looks cool, functions great. Um, you can ride it to the shops, you can ride it on green lanes, or you can ride it around the world. And I, that mm. was really a point that I wanted to prove is that you didn't need a thirty thousand um, dollar tank in order to, yeah. <laughs> to do something yeah. like that um so yeah we got in touch with ducati uk and luckily they said yeah we'll lend you a bike for a year um cool. and see how you get on yeah and like during that process of uh of kind of like work like kind of going through different brands was there was there a bike that like really stood out to you as like that's the one i really want to take or not until the desert sled not really. really? Yeah, okay. I. Um, it was a difficult one. Honestly, I'd have been happy riding almost anything at, at after I after I'd written off my bike. I, I would take yeah. anything I could get. <laughs> but it is, it's a big commitment because you're going to have to spend a year with that motorcycle. Yes. Every yeah, little yeah. niggle that you don't really like to start with, you're going to hate it six months in. Yeah. Um, you get very intimate with that bike. Yeah, definitely. And so it was a big decision. Um, I, I think it worked out really well. I, I absolutely loved that bike. I enjoyed riding it so much. Um, uh, yeah, uh, just incredible. And I, I kept riding it when I got back for about two months until it got stolen. Um, yeah. But and did you yeah. did it did it ever turn up? No, I never. Just disappeared completely. Which um, it was a bit of a shock. I mean, you, like you say, you, you, you form an intimate relationship with that um, with that vehicle, having gone through so much together and doing yeah. it solo. You don't have any person to relate that experience to or with or share that experience with. So my whole experience was shared with this inanimate object, which yeah. um, it was almost like, you know, if you have like your favorite pair of jeans or... Um, or, or a leather jacket and after 10 years it's completely fits you perfectly and it shows every yeah. mark and um has that patina then that bike had a had this patina where my knees had rubbed away the paint on the tank and the seat was creased 
like it was literally an imprint of my bum when I got off the motorcycle. The the saddle was so beaten in. Um, so yeah, losing that was was a strange experience. Um, yeah. And I, I think it actually it, it's not a thing that gets better. It kind of gets worse. <laughs> I could see that as well, because over time, like, especially I'd say, like, in conversations like this, we're sitting here talking about your trip, the bike you were on, you're talking about the things you loved about the about the bike, and you knew so much about it. And I could see that only gets worse. Yeah, that's like, it's not something you you can just let go. No, um, I think it's, it gets worse, because um, the further away in terms of time that your trip gets, the more mm -hmm. distant um and, and further away it becomes in your in your memory and yeah. nothing something um as instrumental in the trip as that motorcycle but just becomes yeah. more important so not having it um is worse so yeah if anyone knows yeah. where it is <laughs> yeah. let me know like just just put it somewhere it, yeah it'd be, after after that happened I, I just kept looking at your profile every once in a while to like see if maybe anything came up um, but nah. I mean, like I know here in Africa, like bikes usually don't turn back up once they're gone, they're gone. Um, on occasion, it does happen where someone is able to find theirs, but usually they're, they're gone. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's a massive problem in the UK, unfortunately. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. Um, but um, so Henry, like leading up to the trip, did you have any like any mentors or people that you went to seek after for like advice um, and sort of like guidance as to how to, how to complete this task? Yeah. I mean, I guess, yes and no. Um, a lot of it is trying to troll the internet and find information that you don't even know if that information exists. There's yeah. such a small percentage of people that have actually done a circumnavigation especially by motorcycle and honestly every time you could leave a day later and your trip would be completely different um mm. i was really fortunate enough to have a conversation with charlie borman um through a friend which was great especially he is such an inspiration um yeah for me as a motorcyclist and wanting to travel by motorcycle um and i remember as a kid staying up late to watch the long way around um so that was wicked um so, and he was that... really helpful but um at that point i did realize that there was that it was going to be the case that you could leave a day later and it would be a completely different game and oh. at that point long way round was like 10 years ago uh, oh, if, if not more so there were so many things that were completely different from when oh, he did. Yeah. um or some incredibly invaluable information as well but i think you have to take everyone's advice with a pinch of salt and um yeah. it's something that you have to learn for yourself uh and there's there's only one way to do that and that's to get your hands dirty and, and see what happens I saw I saw an interview from you at the bike shed. Um, I think it was the day you returned, and and I heard one piece of information that um, I actually referenced in uh, on our interview on Monday, and and that was I think it was Charlie's advice to you that when you get to a border crossing, just expect one day to get through the border and you'll be fine. Yeah, um, and uh, that's that's an amazing thing because I haven't traveled too much to other countries 
um, on motorcycle, like usually the borders that we have here within South Africa are quite easy to get through. Mm. So it'll take an hour max. max. Mm. Um, but if I started traveling further north in Africa where things get interesting, <laughs> I think that's sort of the best plan is to just be patient and, and wait on it. Yeah, you know, it's like, like that um, that are much more helpful than than really specific things. Um, um, those those generalizations and kind of attitude adjustments um, they're really invaluable. And and that was a, a a piece of advice that I really did take to heart. And um, every time I went to cross a border, I yeah. I literally just thought this is going to take a day. And when it takes an hour, bonus. Um, yeah, but then if it's six, seven, eight, you yeah. you didn't have anything else planned, um, and I, I found that having plans or having a strict itinerary just doesn't work, and it stresses you out, um, and and it never goes never goes to plan anyway, so you just don't bother. And did you did you have um, did you have like any key dates that you needed to be somewhere on the trip, or was it just I want to try to beat this guy under fourteen months? And that's so. It. To break the record, I had to get back before my 24th birthday, which is the record that Kane had set was um, 23 years and 365 days because mm. he'd arrived back on his birthday, but before his hour of birth. Um, oh, wow. So I knew I, need, I needed to get back at least the day before my birthday, which was the 11th of May. And um, other than that, I had uh, probably at, at two different points, I had dates that I had to adhere to. Um, the first one I missed completely, which was going, I had to get a tour guide through Iran, otherwise they don't give you a visa. So okay. um, I had a specific date that I had to enter the country and I got to Kazakhstan and was going to drop down through um, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan into Iran. My clutch broke in Kazakhstan, it took two months to get it fixed almost um to get the parts sent out and then do the labor and then they did the labor and realized that i needed some valve replacements as well um just the, the life of, a, of an express bike really um yeah <laughs> but then finally got the bike fixed and turkmenistan rejected my visa application uh, multiple times um it's the it's the second most difficult country or most closed off country after north korea okay so, it's really difficult to get a visa and I just couldn't couldn't get one. So I had to kind of rethink my whole route into Iran. Ended up with a three and a half thousand mile detour back through the road, the exact road I just came for seven days through Kazakhstan, which was nothing. It was flat with camels and really windy. And had a so three and a half thousand miles back on that road through Kazakhstan um, to get to the Caspian Sea. And then um, got a boat across the Caspian Sea to Azerbaijan and got into Iran that way, but was quite a bit late for that tour and had to reschedule all of that. And was just a massive stress having that date looming over you. And I knew as soon as that date was looming over me, things would start to go wrong. And it did. I mean, that was the first time I got pulled over by the police. That was the first time I got a puncture on the trip. That was the first time I had to, and, and that sort of um, yeah. And then the second time was getting into Myanmar for exactly the same reason that I had to have a tour guide and they were very specific with my um, entry and exit dates on the visa. Um, and yet again, all the bearings went in my rear wheel, um, literally two or three days before I was meant to cross. 
So I had to fly back to Delhi to buy the bearings because I couldn't get any in the um, city that I was in. Flew back, got the bearings, flew back to Gauhati mm -hmm. and then had two or three days ride south from there through knee deep mud. Um, it should have been a day's ride, but it took yeah. me 16 hours to do 180 kilometers one day. 17 hours to do 180 k's. Yeah. Because the mud was literally needed all day. And I, I, I remember distinctly thinking to myself, um, as soon as I kind of entered this bit that was muddy and it didn't stop, I, I remember thinking to myself, this today is not a question of if I fall over, it's just what corner I fall over on. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I arrived in um, Imphal that night literally brown my bike was caked in wrist red brown mud and so was i um luckily oh. revit had supplied me with a bright white suit for the trip <laughs> <laughs> are you serious a yeah i can suit. grab it it's literally brown now uh, it's, uh, it's i've got a i've actually got a jacket here uh, uh it's clipped on but it's a it's a white it's a white fuel jacket yeah um and I love it. Like when I first saw it, I was like, man, I, I, I don't think I can own a white motorcycle jacket. But then <laughs> I actually looked at it as an opportunity to get something really dirty. And the more I wear it, the more I travel with it, the dirtier it looks and the better that white actually looks. Because then it, I mean, it's like, it, yeah, it's off colored. It's great. Yeah, they do look really good once they've got a bit of patina uh, to them. But it was diff it was definitely a challenge convincing the um, the like quarantine people in getting into Australia um, yeah. that you're not bringing in dirt and germs and stuff from other countries. <laughs> when my white suit is like black brown, um, they've got a Australia has like a TV show about um, border border patrol. And they are hectic when it comes to people importing stuff. They look through teeth of skulls. They look for hair, like everything. Yeah. So, I, I had to wash my, wash everything. I took me about a week to clean my bike to get it into Australia. Um, oh. Washing all my bags, um, like re-waxing my bags so they looked new. Um, even my tent, I had to take my tent out and just make sure that there was no dirt on the pegs because it's all stuff like that that they, um, they'll pick up on. Luckily, I, when I arrived in Australia, it was about three in the morning. So the airport was dead and they were on like minimal staff. So I just pretty much, they, they did search a couple of my bags, but um, yeah, it was fine. Just had to do wow. it. And, um, sheesh. and where was like your, where was a place that uh, I, I want to say like the, that was your longest detour? Or somewhere that you were like, you know what, I actually love this place and I'm going to take more time than I really need to just hang out. Um, I guess the biggest one would be in Australia. Um, I actually met my now girlfriend on the trip um, in Melbourne, which was probably about halfway through my journey across Australia. Um, okay. I from Perth to, to Brisbane along the south coast. And... Um, I was really burnt out by the time I got to Australia. I'd lost about a third of my body weight. And um, yeah, I, I was knackered. I needed a break. I started getting really ill. Um, met Leah. 
spent a couple of weeks with her in Melbourne and then continued my journey up to Brisbane. And I left my bike in Brisbane and flew back to Melbourne and just spent okay. um, just over a month there. Didn't look at a bike, um, wanted nothing to do with them, quite frankly, mm. um, and just hung out. And that was amazing. I really needed it just to reset and um, build up some strength again, really. It's in tr incredibly physical um, and also mentally taxing um traveling especially by motorcycle for so long i literally carried everything i owned for a year um outside every single day in, in all elements um picking up the bike when you drop it and fighting against oh. the wind and the rain and the snow and yeah, yeah the, the bike's not light and when you when you <laughs> have eaten in potentially a couple of days um that that really starts to kind of take its toll on you um and what was um what was what like what were some things that you had on the trip that you packed beforehand that you're like actually i don't need this it's it's really not important let's get rid of that like how much how often did you shed stuff um it was really difficult because you're never sure it's, it's sort of that doubt that you might need it with with some mm. with some products um i think the main thing is especially when you're visiting lots of cool people and cool places um to do with motorcycles um or not to do with motorcycles that everyone wants to give you a t-shirt or a hat and uh, at, at one point i had 15 hats clipped to a carabiner on one of my bags and it's like what do you do with them i can't afford to send them home because it's, yeah. it's going to cost me probably 50 60 quid to send 10 hats back um, yeah. I don't want to get rid of them because they're like a nice memory of um, all these kind of stops along the way. Mm. So you end up just with that. And I had a lot of t-shirts. When I got to um, America, I stayed with a guy that said, leave your extra t-shirts and I'll post them home for you. I was like, oh, that's going to oh, cost a fortune. Nice. Um, really generously, he, he just paid for the postage, wouldn't let me pay for it. But it cost him almost $100 to send all the t-shirts back to the uk because it was like it was wow. lots my bike was a lot lighter after that i mean i could see that though like i mean when if if you came to south africa if you stopped in a joburg i'd i'd give you a t-shirt as well um and i think we actually had we had a buddy um his name is polo uh he lives in spain and he was doing an around the world trip and um, so, so we own a barber shop nearby called Bonafide Barbers, and uh, Polo pulls into a Triumph dealership that uh, one of my buddies was running, and he takes a photo of the guy, and he's got this long hair, big beard, and he's like, Joe, this guy needs to come to your shop desperately, <laughs> and I was like, dude, tell him to pull in. If he's, if he's riding around the world, we'll take care of him, and he's, his hair looks terrible, um, and it was so cool. Like we, he came to the shop an hour later. I got to chat to him. His English wasn't perfect or not great, but um, it was great to meet him. But I think he, he left like a day later, but then he came back a few weeks later. But I know we gave him stuff. We gave him beard oil, shirts, <laughs> caps. And he's like, oh. I'm sure he tucked him away somewhere. Um, but I mean, that's what we do. And someone like you is traveling around the world. Like, we like want to give you something, but I think and we you realize want to them as well. You you want yeah. those mementos. It's just the when you're on a motorcycle and you've got three bags 
with your whole life in it becomes pretty tricky. Um, and how, um, like, when we when we saw your setup, we saw you had the I think you had the Krieger bags, and um, I had Mali Mali luggage, which is a British company, and then I had, oh, okay. I had a Velamachi rucksack as well, um, okay. and a uh, and a and another waterproof duffel as well. I can't remember okay. the brand. And how how like happy were you with your setup, and and how long? How were you happy with your setup? And then how long did it take you to like really get comfortable with knowing exactly where everything was and <laughs> taking it off, putting it in, taking it off? Like how that how that flow work out? So, so the bags incredibly durable. Um, they they lasted so well, and I still use them to this day. Um, wow. The only slight issue was they, wasn't, they weren't waterproof, which was okay because I had everything inside it, in, inside waterproof um, roll-top containers. But okay. when you're traveling day to day to day, the bags get wet and they don't dry out. Um, so, so you start oh. getting problems with that. But in, in terms of um, usability and, and ease of attaching them and quality, they're second to none. Um, I got to the point where I could take them off the bike and put them all on the bike in five, 10 minutes, which was pretty impressive from what oh. it was taking me at, at the start of the trip. <laughs> um, and, and making sure they were actually really secure as well, which is something I struggled with in the beginning. Mm. Um, just learning the best ways to attach stuff, um, especially when when not riding on the most perfect roads, it's got to hold up to some abuse. Um, in terms of knowing where everything was inside the bags, um, one sort of really useful tip that I, I figured out along the way is I started off um, just writing on the roll top waterproof bags inside the bags, what was okay. in them. Um, okay. and ended up going from that to color coding. So I'd have a different colored bag for different things. Say I'd have like t-shirts in a red bag, um, underwear in a pink bag, electronics in a green bag. And that way I could open up the bag. I, I knew that within that one bag, there was probably these three things. But then if I saw the green bag, I knew that that was the electronics. Um, yeah. So that, that really helped me. Um, but there's always that one thing that you think you've put in one bag and it's at the bottom of the other or yeah. the amount of times I lost my keys and they're in my pocket, you know, like stuff <laughs> like that. when you're really tired and you've been riding for yeah. a long yeah. time. Sure. Um, That's it, always like, where are my keys? Just want yeah. to get on the bike and go. Yeah, or oh, just so so many things like that. It always happens when you're tired, and and that's uh, another another real key piece of advice for traveling long distance is just make sure that you're resting and not riding when you're tired. Because every mistake I made and every costly mistake I made happened when I was tired from mm. losing leaving my glasses on the back of my bike and riding off in the middle of the desert in Kazakhstan to. Oh, really? um, yeah, losing my keys for two hours and they're in my pocket all the time. Stupid stuff. I mean, I, I do that every once in a while with my keys. I'm like looking for my keys. I'm like, where the hell are they? Five minutes later, they're in my hand. Yeah. You know, I'm like, it's, um, it's as simple sometimes as like, um, okay, have you plugged it into the power? Um, is it powered on? You know, it's like, okay, take yeah. a deep breath. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm stressed out. Where are my keys? Where did I last put them? Um, and like, what were, 
what was some of the like most challenging roads that you faced during the trip? Mm, um, definitely that one I mentioned in the, in India, where it took me 16 hours to do very, very yeah. little mileage. Um, the Himalayas was really challenging as well. Um, the remoteness, the quality of the roads um, and, and the altitude and the, the effect of the altitude on myself and on the bike. I actually oh, woke yeah. up one morning and couldn't see um, because I, I'd started suffocating in my sleep um, with oh, altitude sickness. Um, yeah, it made me really quite ill. And just the bike just sucks. The bike performs terribly um, at altitude, especially oh, yeah. if you're not using great fuel as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they were probably the most difficult. Those two different places in India were probably the most difficult technically. Um, and then Iran was probably the most difficult because of other road users. I actually hit, I ran, hit a motorcycle, rode the motorcycle into a person in Iran, um, crossing a crossroads. The light was green. I'm behind another car and the car swerves out the way because a guy's walking across the road on his phone. Uh, and the, the car swerved out the way and I'm already on top of this guy at this point. Oh, and it was, it was that classic situation of like, you know, when you're in the shops and there's not, it's not white and you both go to the same side. Like, <laughs> yeah. It was that, except I'm yeah, on yeah. a motorcycle. <laughs> um, I must have hit him at about five miles an hour. But yeah. um, he, he was all right. I mean, he, went, he kind of took a little bump um but he 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 was a quite a large man and he smashed my headlight um and i dropped the bike and my laptop was in the pannier um soft pannier so my laptop screen was smashed um yeah bent my handlebars all sorts um but yeah that was it iran was literally terrifying not because of um other cars but because of people and just walking out in the road just because they they walk so much and cross the street as uh, I think because there's a lot of traffic. They're like, well, if you don't cross, then if you're not if you don't just walk out, then you don't cross. Yeah. <laughs> so they just walk out. Yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's kind of like here in Africa, but like there's a lot. Um, it was actually one of the first things I noticed when I moved here was like on the highway, people walk, and they don't always look. Um, I've been in a couple situations where I've had to slam on the brakes just from someone walking out and I don't feel like they looked at all. Um, so there's some places where I, I guess that's more common. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, that doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> it's um, pretty stressful. And being yeah. on edge that like on that heightened sense of um, just awareness for extended periods of time is just so draining um so i was i was that kind of continued through around through pakistan and through india with um with just being on edge because of traffic the whole time or dangerous road conditions so when i got to myanmar i was quite relieved that there was relatively little traffic um for the first day and then the flood started so all of the roads flooded and the bridges broke and i was riding underwater for half the trip um but i mean that's that's less that was kind of a bit of an adventure and, and a bit more fun than at least you know the road's flooded you know you're going to drive through it now you you can with uh with with people or with bad roads or with animals in road 
Um, you don't always get the warning, and then suddenly you, you you're in an accident. I'm just gonna grab my charge cable real quick. Okay, I saw I saw it freeze up. Um, so we've got about just over 15 minutes left on the show. Actually, 17 to be exact. Um, if you have questions for Henry, um, you can click the question button down below. I'll get it. I do have a few more questions for him. Um, but if anyone has one in particular that you'd like me to ask, um, just hit the button below and I will ask him. Um, Henry, so I got off track now. Um, <laughs> Sorry, out of, like, I'm always, one thing I, I love about travel is the people that I meet along the way and the places that you stay. What was like the most random, weird or awkward place that you stayed uh, during the trip? Ooh. Or, um, or give me a few. Or the, So I stayed with people through Instagram, through social media, through friends of oh. friends, um, about 70% of the time. Uh, okay. The rest of the time, I was trying to find the cheapest hotels or hostels that um, that I could, or I was camping <laughs> in a little coffin tent that I that I brought with me. Um, I mean, I'd say ninety, literally ninety nine point nine percent of the people that I stayed with um, and the people that I met along the way were absolutely incredible, so generous, um, really interesting people that didn't um that that really understood that you're on a big trip and you might not want to wake stay up until three in the morning and um, <laughs> yeah. answer questions and stuff like, like that probably pretty tired <laughs> yeah um literally everyone was amazing um there was a yeah. few sort of interesting events that happened um along the way but all of them it's just sort of that color that adds to the trip going to yeah. go in going to shoot guns in Arizona. Most of them were in America, actually, all of the like weird ones. <laughs> That's a very Arizona thing to do. Yeah, go shoot guns yeah. in the desert. Um, yeah. Lots you can of, ride your motorcycle there without a helmet. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard. To, I can't, I don't know. It's not something I've thought about all that much, but um, okay. for, for me, I was just so grateful doing it on a shoestring budget that anyone would let me in their house. Um, yeah. And the majority of the time, people were so generous, um, so kind and welcoming. I was just stoked to be doing it, to be honest, um, yeah. the whole way around. And, um, and Henry, uh, like uh, um, you mentioned earlier, and I, and I saw in a previous interview that you mainly did the trip on your own budget. Um, why do you think it was so hard to sort of raise sponsorship funds for like such a big feat that you that you did? Um, it's something that I still struggle to answer, but I don't think that the outcome will change. Um, the the two people that did the record before me and the guy that's currently trying to break it now, um, when they left for the trip, were in the same position. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I was coming to manufacturers, to literally anyone. I must have sent thousands of emails. Um, I guess part of it is, the, the, the and there's no real guarantee that you're going to do it or how successful it's going to be. So it's a bit of a risk. Um, the motorcycle industry is quite small. It's not yeah. growing. Um, 
and there's not a huge amount of money in it. So that's another reason. Um, and I wasn't really anyone. I don't know if I really would even be considered anyone now. Um, when you when you compare um, my sort of following and, and the exposure that I had along the trip, it doesn't compare in anything to a single tweet from David Beckham or whoever else. So there's, I don't know, motorcycling is very stuck in its, in its ways. They're still spending millions on um, racing, which no one watches anymore. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I wish this is the million dollar question, really. And I, w I wish it was different. And hopefully it will change and I'll be able to work with, um, with more motorcycle companies in the future. I really hope yeah. that. I think it'd be really exciting. Um, but they just need to put their money where their mouth is and stop expecting people to pay for them to make more money. I mean, I sold over a million pounds worth of, um, of Ducati motorcycles in that year which is calculated just from people that messaged me and said, I've bought this bike because of your trip. So I can't account for everyone else that was sort of, I hate the word influenced, but influenced um, to, to make that yeah. purchase yeah, buy sure. my trip or, or by anyone else that's um, creating engaging content. Uh, it's mm. really crazy. 20 years ago, a, a company would have to have a whole creative team to decide that strategy, um, to decide that that content was going to be made and then to shoot um, that content and then publish it. So yeah. now, muggins like me just thinks, oh, I'm going to do it and spend all my savings and take out a loan in order to sell them millions of pounds worth of gear. So <laughs> It's a shit place to be in because like um, we we have partnerships that we work with and we realize that um, we do provide others with opportunity for income um, doing what we do um, through partnerships and what we say like um, being influential sort of in a way. I don't like that word influencer, but like Ducati definitely sold motorcycles because of what you did. I like, and what was crazy was that I think it was around the time you were doing your trip or before that, I tried out a desert sled. Um, what I liked about it was it, it, it had height for me. I'm two meters tall. So that, that worked for me. Um, there was a few things that it felt like a bit plasticky. Um, so I was a bit concerned about it. But I think if, if, if I was interested in a desert sled and I saw you riding it, I'd question it. And they'd be like, cool, well, he, he went around the world on it. So it's definitely a great bike. Um, so it is kind of unfortunate that um, they gave you a bike. Yes, it is great to have a bike for a trip, but it does fuck all for you if you're out somewhere and you know, you, you've got to make it around the world um, because yeah. you could always find another bike. Yeah, I think the, the thing was as well that I I was in a position to start with where I needed a motorcycle to do the trip on. And um, and they came through with that and supported. Um, but they lent me the bike for the trip, so I didn't own it at any point. And it was under the proviso that when I got home, it would be returned to them. Um, yeah. So, and you, and you even had problems during the trip getting through borders. Yeah. That was my second bike. point, is that uh, firstly, they're not financially invested in making the trip happen, which is one issue on its own. 
but then um there was certain issues with uh w like i said with the with the clutch going in kazakhstan mm. where it was two months in a constant battle for me not to have to pay to replace their 40 part on their motorcycle which mm. i'm selling them millions of or well, not millions of but millions of pounds worth of um yeah. by doing the trip so <laughs> it was just uh I don't think it was intentional. I think in some ways it was just poor management and bad communication and a bit of bureaucracy. Um, yeah. And I, I, I met a, a lot of amazing people within Ducati, specifically um, Ducati USA and Ducati um, Southeast Asia as well. Okay. Um, who really just went out of their way to help me, supply me with anything I needed. Um, like to one point i broke a fork seal um on on the bike heading into thailand and i called in at the factory um which is close to the public but they gave me a tour around like hang out with me <laughs> every day took me out for lunch said oh we're just going to replace every part that looks a bit shit on your bike or like that that might be on the way out um with the fork seal they said it was they have at the factory um any part that gets scratched post um, leaving the factory they can't put on a bike so it just goes on the scrap heap so they had a pile of um, of forks there with slight defects um, in in the paint or whatever so like yeah. actually it's gonna take us like two and a half hours to take your fork apart um, replace the seal put it back together refill it with oil and reinstall it on your bike but we yeah. have we have a pile of perfect brand new suspension. We're just going to take it out, put yours in the bin, and then put one of these ones with a little scratch on it in your bike, yeah. free of charge. Um, it was fantastic, and the guys yeah. in America fought so hard um, to get Ducati Italy to replace parts of my bike that broke when I was there. And this is at like fifty thousand miles and. Um, shit oil and and all of the this this sort of stuff um, it wasn't yeah. anything that I wouldn't have expected to happen but the handling of stuff like that in addition to not supporting you in other ways on the trip made it really difficult and and a lot of people that I've spoken to have kind of said if you can avoid getting into bed with um, with any brands um, do because they want way more than they're going to give you in return. And yeah. I think earrings true. And I find it really fun working with brands. And I've been lucky to work with some really amazing brands since coming back, but nearly all of them have been outside of the motorcycle industry looking in rather than, um, rather mm -hmm. than a mainstream motorcycle manufacturer or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, trying to find a good common ground. It's, it's not always easy. Yeah, um, but um, Henry, what um, there was a photo that I've had so many questions on, and that's the photo looks like you're crossing a bridge. I'm assuming you're arriving into London because there's a whole crew of people behind you. Like, what was that feeling like when you met up with everyone and you rode into the bike shed? Like, were you were you crying? um were you so excited were you fucking exhausted like i cannot wait to get to the bike shed get some food interview and go home like what, what was that like it was such a mix of all of those things really um i mean the day 
so I arrived back in the UK the day before. I caught the um, the Eurotunnel from France to Folkestone, which is um, right on the coast. And I just stayed in Folkestone that night, ready to depart really early the next morning. Um, I had a few radio interviews that I had to get up for that were like breakfast um, breakfast radio shows. Okay. I got up at like five to do those. And honestly, I was just so nervous because I was, I was really shitting myself that no one was going to turn up. <laughs> and I was, I was going to walk up to this place and have like three or four people um, that I knew were coming. Um, Mom, but, dad, your neighbor. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what happened was I rode to one point that we'd organized for everyone to meet, which was uh, about a three hour ride. Um, through a couple of other points to pick people up along the way to ride back into London as the final point. So I rode out to um, Laguna Ducati in Ashford, um, which was the first meeting point. There's like 40 people there. And I'm, I'm blown away at this point. And every stop, there's more people joining. I think at one point, we probably had about 60 or 70 riders, wow. um, which was awesome. And uh, it felt... It's that... I don't know if you've ever ridden in the distinguished. If you've ever ridden in the distinguished gentleman's ride, yeah. you, you have that sort of um, mob, man, mob mentality. It's organised mm. chaos. And oh, it's massive. It's electric. Um, really incredible. And that feeling that those people had come there to support me and, and show um, kind of some uh, some respect i guess for what i had achieved and wanted to be part of that journey and the some of them were there at the start as well and when i rode out from from london to folkestone it was really really touching and really special um i was just incredibly humbled that people had taken an interest and and still to this day taken an interest in um, me wanting to live out one of my dreams um so cool like how can we how can we not i mean we were down here in south africa watching you all along the way, like checking in on you, on you every once in a while. When we saw the clutch problem, like, fuck, man, I really hope he gets that clutch fixed. And, you know, you were there for such a long time and then you got back on and continued going. Like, it was, it's an amazing thing to, to accomplish, especially if you were trying to do it within a certain amount of time. Um, because then you've got so many more pressures if you're, if you're trying to break a record. Um, but it really was um good to good to see you finish um we've got about two minutes left on the show um so i think i'm gonna close out um but henry dude i'm i'm very proud of you um it was so cool to to watch you during your trip um it was really great to to have you on the show and to hear some of your stories um i look forward to seeing more photos of you uh, coming up, hopefully at the DGR, like here in South Africa, it's massive here in Joburg. I think we have about 1,500 people uh, rock up at DGR. It's really cool. Um, and then are you still doing Movember? Are you still, uh, are there any ways people can donate to 35,000 miles? Yeah, so um, the fundraising page is, is still live, I believe. Um, okay. If you hit the link in my bio, you can my website and there'll be um links to donate there um okay but yeah so yeah november was the cause i raised money for along the way men's mental health and suicide prevention and testicular cancer cancer um so yeah 
Okay. So everyone, thank you so much for joining us tonight with Henry. Um, like I mentioned earlier, if you missed any episodes, um, uh, Henry, this podcast should be available tomorrow. Uh, I'll send you a link once it's up. Everyone else, you can check out our website. Go on to the Bonafide Moto Show portion of bonafidemotoco.com. Uh, tune in Friday nights with Cam Elkins from Stories of Bike. Who knows who we're going to have on the show next week. I've got one person lined up and I've got gap for two more. So let's see. Um, Thanks for having Henry, me. Though. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, dude. Hopefully either you come to South Africa after this shit or I'll see you in London at some point. Or but, Australia. Um, yes, yes. Or Australia. 